Our scripture reading comes from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For though, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Alrighty, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Anybody awake? Nope. Always happens, second week of school, turn around, everybody's tired, missing some folks. That's okay, we're glad you're here. Maybe we can get you awake. The passage of scripture that we're looking at today, we're finishing chapter one. We've been studying the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in a series that we've entitled, Who Am I?, And in this series, the first three chapters are all about identity. You won't find a single imperative within those first three chapters because Paul is trying to root the church in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we finish chapter 1 today, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 23. And as we look at this text, we're going to be examining the subject of prayer. The subject of prayer. The church has complicated prayer. You can see that in a group of people when you ask for someone to volunteer to pray. Would someone like to pray? And a hush seems to settle over the group until you ask someone to pray. And then they look at you kind of with eyes that are, they don't want to refuse because they don't, they don't really want to say, I don't know how to do that. Or God and I, we're not really on speaking terms right now. So you kind of get this look like, if I must. And then they pray. But prayer has always been really simple. Prayer is speaking to God. Think about it. We open God's word. And let me, let me rewind that, especially for believers who have been a part of a church for years and years and years. We open the words of God in this book. And when we read them, we hear God's words. And then when we pray, we talk back to Him. Think about that. These are the very words of God that we read. And then prayer is simply talking back to God. Prayer is not something that we clock in or clock out of. It's not something that we should do more of. It's not something that we must. Prayer is actually a privilege And I hope that as we study this text today, that we'll come to a better understanding of the privilege of prayer and also the way in which Paul teaches us to pray. See, prayer is a privilege because up until this point, we've seen throughout chapter 1 that we have been chosen, that we have been adopted, and that we have been redeemed or rescued. 
And because of the fact that we've been adopted, what that means is that we have unique access to God. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. My kids are a little older now. They're 11, 15, and 17. But, you know, this still hasn't changed. They have unfettered access to me and my wife at any time of the day or night. You don't have that. You can't come into my bedroom in the middle of the night. Thankfully, they can. And this has changed a little bit over time, but it happens constantly. Those of you who have young kids, you know it well. It usually starts off with something like, Mom and Dad, I'm thirsty. Right? You know this? Which is really code language for like, there's a monster under my bed, and I don't want to admit it, and so I'm just going to tell you I'm thirsty because I know where the faucet is. Or one of my favorites is, Mom and Dad, I can't sleep. Because I'm thinking in my head, well, then there's two of us, you know, because I've usually just like drifted off to sleep. Or my, my favorite of all time is this. Some of you know it. You're going to grimace. Mom and Dad, I think I might have thrown up. No, you don't think. You either splattered the wall and it's dripping now out of the top bunk onto your brother's head below you, or you didn't, Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Kids have access to mom and dad at all times of the day. And what do we do? What do we do when they come in? Now, this is where the illustration breaks down because my wife will say, no, you don't. You just lay there asleep and I tell you about it the next morning. But God never slumbers or sleeps and God hears us when we pray. He hears us. He's never too busy. He's never too tired. He never says, oh, that's stupid that you would ask for that. In fact, we have a a brother who is a good brother. He doesn't beat us up. He doesn't look for opportunities to jack with us. His name is Jesus, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for us. And so when we pray stupid prayers, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he's essentially saying, here's what he really means. Prayer is a privilege that's given to us. The church has complicated this the big idea for today is this as we look at Ephesians prayer enables the Christian to take hold of all that God offers us in Jesus prayer enables the Christian to take hold of all that God offers us in Jesus and here's what I mean by that It's not enough to simply know that we've been chosen and adopted and redeemed. Because to be honest, some of you guys, your theology is too good. Like your theology is just right. But your belief, which is when real theology, when the rubber meets the road, like your belief on your worst of days, do you understand that you are not loved by God any less or loved by God any more because of Jesus. I believe that it's prayer that enables us to take hold of all that God has for us, of all that he offers us, for all that he wants to do in and through us. Paul begins in verse 15 and he says, For this reason. The reason that Paul is talking about is that he's falling all over himself Verses 3 through verse 14, the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. Paul has gotten so excited about the fact that that he has been redeemed and adopted and chosen that he is like 
a school kid who can't shut up. He is just going on and on and on in this beautiful, run-on, poetical sentence. It's all of verses 3 through 14. And he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I love this. Instantly, we see that a healthy Christian bears a cross-shaped birthmark. And what I mean by that is there's a vertical trust in Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross, and there's a horizontal love for other believers. There's a vertical trust in Jesus' work on the cross, not in our work, not in the work of a particular brand or organization, but in the work of Jesus through his church. There's a trust in that. And then there's a love for all believers. What Paul is saying is that there is no such thing as competition in the kingdom of God. There's a love for all believers that we're all on the same team. He goes on in verse 16 and these are his words. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. Instantly, many of you are turned off by that phrase when you read it. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Impossible. It's like a bad New Year's resolution. It's a great idea, but who can accomplish it? You know? And so oftentimes when we see phrases like this, I think we, we kind of subconsciously think to ourselves... I'm not going after that. I can't pull that off. I can't accomplish that. Seems easier just not to try. But if we constantly fail at prayer, then I think there may be a bit of a clue for us there that we're doing something wrong. See, prayer isn't primarily about asking God to provide for our needs. Paul models for us in this prayer... He models that. That it's not primarily just about asking God to fulfill our needs. You even see that modeled in the Lord's Prayer. How long does it take you to find... Look at the pronouns in the Lord's Prayer. Think about them. Our Father, our. Who art in heaven, hallowed it be your, your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And then when you get to providing for needs, it still give us, give us this day our daily bread. Paul is modeling for us that prayer begins with trusting God to provide for our brothers and sisters and for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Listen, prayer is not about getting God on, on our agenda or, or trying to get God to answer our list. And that's how most of us kind of text message prayers to God. Kind of our list of what we need. Prayer is first and foremost learning to submit ourselves to God's agenda and to his plan. We're going to unpack what that means. Learning to submit ourselves to his agenda and his plan. I think most of us think that prayer is mainly about getting what's on our heart on God's heart. And maybe if we do that... Um, long enough that, that he'll respond. But prayer is, is so much more about learning what's on God's heart and getting that on our heart. 
We're going to see how Paul does that. Three things Paul prays for Christians in this passage that I want us to quickly examine. Three things Paul prays for Christians. The first is this. We see it in verse 17. To know God better. Paul prays that we would know God better. Look at verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. In the knowledge of God. Paul's prayer is simply to know God more. And some of we may need to be reminded that even if you've known God for most of your life, you can know God more. I've dated or been married to my wife for 24 years. And I can know so much more about my wife. There's so much more. In 24 years from now, if God blesses us with that time, I will be able to look and say there's so much more that I can know. I honestly can't imagine a time in our history in which prayer is needed more. And and here's why I say that. We have become a people with information at our fingertips. I mean, we have... I was running with Andrew and with Ben yesterday, and we were were talking. Something came up about encyclopedias. We were talking about encyclopedias. Some of you guys don't know what those are. If you go to the library... Um, you might be able to find some. I don't even know if they have them there anymore. And, but there were these books that were like A to Z. And you could find a little something about everything. But now we have these supercomputers that we, that we carry around in our pockets. That we call cell phones. They're not really phones. They're supercomputers. I mean, they're far more advanced than what they ran hospitals and, and off of in the 70s and 80s. And we have infinite amounts of knowledge at our fingertips. And so information is, is escalating at an all-time high. I mean, if you look at, we've talked about the statistics before. I've listed them for you about how much like the breadth of knowledge in our world. It's like what we learned over several centuries now. That like doubles or triples or quadruples like every few weeks. It's out of control. Yet at the same time, as information is, is, is climbing, all the while, it's staggering to see that the ability to develop relationships, the ability to meditate and to make wise decisions with all the information that we have at our hands and at our fingertips, is at an all-time low. I mean, I've got, I've got one um, friend who, he's a little bit of an older guy, and he says, man, you say something wise, and people look at you like you're a superhero. Like, wisdom is unheard of in this day and time. And, and Paul isn't praying that, he's not praying that we would simply know God in the sense of, like, theology or more information, but he's praying that we would know Him personally, and that we would live in, in a deep relationship with Him, the kind of relationship that transforms our daily life. Like how we go about, not simply what we do, yes, but even how we go about what we do. I've got a quote for you from J.I. Packer. I think you'll see it on the screen. Friends, book, Knowing God. He says, We are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. 
The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold. As it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. I was thinking about this in in light of uh, Mercy Hill Church, and we oftentimes will talk about seeing the gospel at work in the everyday stuff of life. You guys know that This is about half of the people who are a part of Mercy Hill. If you look around, it's probably about 125, 130 of us who are part of a missional community that meets during the week or part of a smaller coffee group that meet together. And I thought how ironic it is that we talk about we don't want Sundays are very important, but we don't want Sundays to simply define what it means to have a relationship with God. We want Mondays to define what it means, and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And so we want to see the gospel impact our lives in the everyday stuff of life. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about that in light of knowing God better. And I wonder, when it comes to seeing the gospel impact our lives in the everyday stuff of life, I wonder how many of us simply have a plan as to how we're going to go about that. And I mean even outside of missional communities and coffee groups and showing up on a Sunday like this. I wonder how many of of us have a strategic plan, how we're just going to meet God in His Word on a daily basis. Because it would be ironic if we said we were part of a church with a vision in which we wanted to see the gospel infiltrate the everyday stuff of life 24-7. We didn't even take the time in the mornings just to meet God in His Word. I want to encourage you, if you're not a part of a coffee group, we're going to be doing a lot of work to pour more resources into our coffee group leaders and to train them up well. Um, If you're not part of one of those little bands of three or four people that get together for a breakfast or evening, or talk with your missional community leader about that. Find out how you can be involved, because we all need accountability. We all need other people around us who are in the Word. So that we're being reminded that our hearts are being nurtured in the truths of the gospel through the word. That we would know God better. You know, knowing someone well who loves you, guys, is deeply satisfying. Like, knowing someone well who loves you is deeply satisfying. I think we oftentimes think of our relationship with God as if we need to know him better because we're going to be tested on it. Like some of us who grew up in the church, we played one too many rounds of Bible trivia. You know what I mean? Like we, we go to God, and when I, even when I just talked about coffee groups, like you're thinking, yeah, that's what I should do. Almost like it's a dread, like that's one more thing I should add to my list because like I'm going to be tested on that or something. No, there is deep satisfaction in knowing the person of God. Do you remember that when you first came to know him, his presence in your life? The peace that surpassed all other understanding? Do you remember what that was like? We find great satisfaction in knowing God and in being known by him. I believe there's no greater joy. 
So Paul says he prays that we'd know God better, but he also prays that we would know greater hope. And I'm going to move quickly through this. I've probably got more notes than I'm going to share, so just bear with me here. Um, I'm going to move through this quick. In verse 18, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Whenever you think about um, your heart, in the scriptures, the heart is the center of the will and the emotions. It's, it's where your values and, and what you do, it's, it's coming from the heart. You know, it's kind of like you are what you love, and what you love is coming from the heart, and it's going to be displayed in, in your, your hands and how you act. That's what the, he says. But he says that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Paul is praying that the eyes of our hearts would be open, in a sense, to value the things that Jesus values. Eternal things. Not things that are temporary. So to value things like Jesus and the gospel. To value people. To value the poor. To value the guy who sells newspapers on a Sunday morning on your way here. To value the cranky lady who sits next door to you in the cubicle at work. That we would see the world as God sees the world. That's what he's praying for. Because that's really as the world, it's really the way the world really is. And he's praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details here. There's a lot of rich stuff that's found in this word enlightened. Because we're in Ephesus. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. This is the seventh wonder of the world's located there. It's it's the temple of Artemis um, or Diana. And there's a lot that you can look at there. But just know that witchcraft and the occult and magic, I mean, it is. there is no greater place. For witchcraft and magic. You see it in Acts 19 because when Paul shows up in in Acts 19 and he's working there at Ephesus, if you'll remember, he causes so much disruption that as believers come to know Jesus, there's, I think, they get their magic books. This is just a church. And they throw them in a pile and they burn them. Now this is not, John and I were joking around earlier, this is not youth group when you took your CDs and broke them at camp and put them in the bonfire because John and I were talking about that this morning we were like regretting some of those albums that we did yeah but I digress they spent about six million dollars in magic books that they just burned up it would have been I think 50,000 days wages that they burned the church there so much that it began to change the culture of Ephesus like it shifted Um, It shifted the job market so much that there was a riot that took place because of this with thousands of people who joined in a theater there and they were ready to flail Paul. I mean, just great disruption was brought. That's the kind of enlightenment that these people were used to tracking with, okay? And Paul says, no, I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, not like the enlightenment that you're used to in Ephesus, so enlightened there, it was a term that the cults and the mystery religions used. And these secret cults, they had a belief that if you became enlightened, then you would gain access to powers that that cult claimed. So when you're initiated into their cult, you're enlightened, meaning you have access to a higher power. And Paul is saying there is no higher power. 
power than the name of Jesus. Now think with me for a moment. He says he's praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would see the, the higher power in which Jesus is at work. But he goes on and he says that you may know what is the hope. Enlightened hearts and hope are connected in this passage. When it comes to prayer, so often I think our prayers get misdirected because we're putting our hope in God's ability to change our circumstances. We oftentimes put our hope in God's ability to change our circumstances. And oftentimes God doesn't change our circumstances. Instead, He changes our hearts so that we see our circumstances from His perspective. And so that we put our hope in Jesus and not in the world. It's how Paul could sit and write this letter from prison. Think about what he's praying and what he's asked for so far. Notice he hasn't once asked for them to pray for his release. In fact, he hasn't asked for anything connected to his circumstances or to theirs. Which, that's not to say that praying for our circumstances is wrong. That's that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it shouldn't be the primary focus of our lives. Paul instead focuses on the eternal blessing we have in God through Jesus. So let me just ask you this as you think about it. What's the greater miracle in our lives? For God to deliver us miraculously from our temporary trials? Or for God to allow us to suffer in the middle of our trials, all the while giving us strength to find joy in Him? In the midst of pain to find hope, even in the midst of our suffering. What's the greater miracle? Paul ends by saying that because we found our greatest hope in Jesus, God actually values us as his inheritance. Look at that wording. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What are his glorious inheritance? You and I. Can you believe that? That God values you in that sort of way? I mean, I, I begin to see that just a little bit in my kids. Like, um, they're getting older, and so we're not in, like, the diaper changing, I'm always serving you. Um, you know, we're, we have even some adult conversations sometimes. And I see that where, like, there, there's value in my investment that I've made, and I'm starting to see some of that return. Um, but the thing that I do that's so wrong is, is I'll, I'll like compliment my kids and be like, Johannes, great job. You got to play one, one play last week in middle school football as a sixth grader on the B team, and he sacked the quarterback. Yeah, one play, one sack. And so I'll compliment him on that. But the problem is that too often I compliment my kids when they do things well. God compliments us all the time. God values us eternally, inherently, because of Jesus. Our value is never lessened. We are his inheritance because we are perfect because of Jesus. Finally, in verses 19 through 21, Paul prays to know God's power. To know God's power. We have to be careful with this one. Look at verse, follow along with me. And what's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might 
which he worked in Christ when he raised us from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul is saying, and I want you to hear this, Paul is saying that the same power at work in raising Jesus from the dead is at work in our mortal bodies. Catch hold of that. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is at work in us, transforming us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. That's the power that we have access to through the Holy Spirit. And His power is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In Ephesus, those were like these, this kind of grid that they used in order to measure within their cults. Oh, which, how powerful are the gods in which you follow? And Paul is saying he's above all. Anything that you could, could find hope in, anything that you think brings emotional energy or power to your life, Jesus is above them all. Paul's saying there's nothing we'll face in this life that has the power or the ability to overcome us. Because of Jesus, we have power to be brought to life with God and to know him one day in heaven. But I think when we think about power, I said we have to be careful how we, how we um, understand this. Because I think we have to be particularly careful in the Western church, in our American culture, when it comes to thinking about God's power and his rule and reign. Because God's kingdom is subversive. It doesn't always mirror the power we see at work around us particularly in America. Um, on this screen, you're going to see a book that I want to recommend for your reading, and I actually brought it um, so that you can see how small it is. It's a book by Julie Canlis, and it's entitled A Theology of the Ordinary. And I want to recommend it to you, and I'm going to do this and show you just how readable it is. You can sit down in one setting and read this. And in her book, I just want to read one her introduction to you, just a couple of paragraphs. She writes and she says, Three years ago, my husband and I moved our family back to America after living 17 years abroad. Upon our return, our then eight-year-old daughter, who had been born and raised in Scotland, asked, Mom, why do all the signs in America say the best or the biggest or the greatest in the world? I... American that I am, had not even noticed. Does one notice the air one breathes? Does one notice that the grass is green? Although I had not been aware of the extreme marketing claims that bombarded us far and wide, I was becoming aware of similar language among American Christians, although directed toward a different purpose. It seemed as if all my new acquaintances were reading books called Radical or Passion or Crazy Love or relentless, or impact, or fervent. In fact, that year's biggest Christian conference was called Passion. I could not help but notice the fact that it was held in none other than Atlanta's Infinite Energy Center. None of this in and of itself is wrong. But it comes with an expectation that can do more damage than good, without an equal emphasis on discipleship in normal life where our energy is less than infinite, 
the gospel can become imbalanced and undeveloped. I just mentioned several books, and I own a lot of those and have found great value in some of them. And if you go on to read the rest of her book, you'll see that she doesn't swing the pendulum from the side of relentless or passion to the side of doing nothing, which is another issue that we could come up against, having no vision. But she does a good job of walking out. What does it look like to understand that God's infinite power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in my heart and in my life today? Because if we're honest, most of us would say, doesn't feel like it. It will not feel like it on Monday morning when I'm trying to rush the kids out the door for school and we've woken up late. It will not feel like it on Wednesday night when we're hurrying toward missional community or hurrying out of missional community to try to get everyone in bed. What does that power look like at work in our lives? Because Paul goes on to say in verses 22 and 23, he goes on to say, and he put all things under his feet, speaking of Jesus, And gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul, I mean, you could preach an entire sermon or even series off of those two verses. Paul is saying that Jesus is the senior pastor of every church. He's saying that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and that the church is his presence throughout the world and that he is using his power in us to feel the world in a way that he says that the world is going to experience the fullness of him who feels all in all. That like the gospel is going to infiltrate every little crack of life. And we're sitting here going, my theology and my belief of God's power at work in me is up here. But man, when I try to live that out on a Monday, I'm missing something. I want to share with you a way that you could think about prayer. Because here's my question. How can we feel all in all as the people of God in the normal, everyday stuff of life when babies cry, right? In the diaper changing, going to work, cooking and washing dishes at night, mowing the lawn, rushing to bed and getting up the next day to do it all over again. How can we see the gospel at work in that? As we see Paul's heart for prayer and his focus on knowing God and knowing God's power and the value that we have in Christ, I want to share with you an idea that Zach Eswine shares in his book, The Imperfect Pastor. And he takes the Psalms and some of Jesus' um, life, and he divides the day up into four portions. And I just want to leave you with this as you think about how we could live out this prayer life that Paul is describing in the four portions of a day. The four portions go like this. There's the grace of the morning. And the morning is... You know, 6 a.m. to noon, roughly. And in that time, it's a time of grace. We have a new day. It's oftentimes where we'll sit and read God's Word, and it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the grace of God in our lives, that we've made it through another night, and we've been given new joy, new grace. And the morning stirs us to pray. We would think, 
of the morning. And then we think of noonday wisdom. Noonday wisdom. So from noon until about 6 p.m. And uh, this is really what could best be described as like the burden of the day. You know, this is, if you look in the Psalms, this is the scorching heat. This is the hard part of the day. Uh, This is after lunch when you get the wiggles, you know, and you're squirming in your legs. You just don't want to be at work and you're twiddling your thumbs. And it's the part of the day where you're thinking they don't pay me what I'm worth. And it's the part of the day where you're tempted to leave early and head to happy hour and cut the day short. You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, It's the part of the day that requires patience and perseverance. And so it humbles us. That part of the day. And then think about uh, evening hospitality. So let me say this. The grace of the morning would be the time in which we sing. Noonday wisdom would be the time in which we persevere. Evening hospitality would be the time in which we give thanks. It's from sunset or about 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. It's a time in which we, it's workless. We leave our work behind. Um, it's a time for uh, mundane, the sacred blessings of a meal. Um, it's the time in which we're careful not to take our irritable attitudes from work home with us. Because we know that the problems that we had throughout the day particularly in the afternoon, we need to give to Jesus. And then finally, we think about the last part of the day, the last portion, solitude and the night watches. And you see this all throughout the Psalms. And as you get older and maybe struggle more with sleep, you'll come to understand solitude and the night watches even more. They're from 10 p.m. until about 6 a.m. And during this time, we consider what troubles us. We lay in bed, we can't sleep, and we speak to God about those things. Now, what would it look like, I'm going to leave those on the screen, what would it look like if throughout the day we thought of prayer as not something, something that we simply stop to do, but an attitude of our heart in which we maybe don't get too far ahead of ourselves, You know, not in which we begin to think about tomorrow or next week. Because what did Jesus say? This day has enough trouble of its own. But that we even just think about the next few hours. And in the morning that we would begin by saying, God, you've given me grace for this day. You've given me a new day. You've given me joy that comes in the morning. God, what are you calling me to in this day? That we would review our calendars and suddenly learn that we've already appointed too many things for this day and maybe we might delete some or that our day is empty and we know that it might be spent lazily and so we add some things that we take Jesus with us in our day and as we come toward noon here's the key as you prepare to rush off to that lunch appointment and you're thinking I can get there in seven minutes I got one more chance to answer an email. They'll probably be running running late. I'll just wait until 11.55 to leave. What would it be like if you just said, no, at 11.50, I'm actually going to put five minutes of margin in my schedule. I'm going to get in my car slowly. I'm going to turn the radio off. And I'm just going to spend some time with God reflecting on the morning. And I'm going to think about, God, where have I just run right past your grace this morning? 
God, where have I in my day already sinned? Like it's, it's in my attitude. And for some of you, if you're teachers, that five minutes might literally be from your walk to your classroom to the cafeteria. You just say, I'm going I'm to make it a little slower. And then from your cafeteria back to your classroom. Maybe it's only 30 seconds that you have, but you say, I'm going I'm to involve God in what's taking place this day. And then that you trust God in the struggle of the afternoon that you say, God, I need your strength to persevere. I need your strength to kind of have the kind of attitude that you call me to have in the afternoons. To work as if I'm working unto the Lord and not to man. And then that as you prepare to go home, that you actually leave some margin so that you're not just rushing to the grocery store and then you're getting home late. Um, but that you're actually in your car on the way home thinking about, what about this day? Or maybe if you have the possibility even to pop open your calendar and to review your day. I'm, folks, I'm saying for two or three minutes. And that you would say, God, how is my heart? Just to check in. Here's, a, here's, here's one that most of you don't even know how to do. How am I feeling? Simply to ask the question, how am I feeling, will get you back in touch with your body which is a huge step in our spiritual development. We'll talk more about that later. How am I feeling? I am a human being, not a human doer. I am not a robot. God's presence is in me. He wants to transform not just what I do, but who I am, even the way I go about it. And so that you would review, what has this day meant? What have I done? What do I need to leave here? See, typically, if I'm not checking in with my heart by 5.30 or 6, I am flustered. I, I have a belief in my mind that I haven't accomplished all the things that needed to be accomplished that day. And there is something going on in my heart that says, unless you get those other 10 things done, you cannot rest. That's, what, that's, that's what's going on in, in my demented mind at the end of the day. And at 5 or 5.30 to be able to say, God, today is yours. It's not mine, it's yours. I'm going to leave work at work. I'm going to pray about some attitudes that I had, some sins, some people that I sinned against today. Maybe even ask for forgiveness, maybe even go to them, and then I'm going to go home. And I'm going to be with my family at home. I'm going to look them in the eyes, I'm going to put my phone down, and I'm going to actually count this as sacred time. Time around the table, time in which we have friends over. It's not one more thing to do on a list, it's hospitality. We get to care for one another and love one another. Our lives are going to be richer as a result of it. And then I'm going to lay down at night at a reasonable hour, which means I'm not going to watch Netflix all night. I'm going to lay down at a reasonable hour, and I'm not going to take a sleeping pill necessarily, um, but I'm going to reflect on, God, what brought me here, and what's, I'm going to check in with my heart and say, what's going on in me, and what's keeping me from sleep? And God, I'm going to, I'm going to pray and give that to you. What would it be like if we thought of our day as four portions and we actually took God with us and asked God to come and be with us during that day? Paul says, I, I pray ceaselessly that you would know God better, that you would know his greater hope, and that you finally would know his power. Today, as we come to communion, I'm going to invite the band to... to come and prepare just um, they're going to take communion and then they're going to prepare to lead us in our last song as you prepare your hearts for communion you know i think one of the reasons why we rush by communion sometimes and why we we rush to bigger and greater things is because 
we've forgotten that God's at work in the ordinary. Ordinary bread and ordinary juice that remind us of an extraordinary God. May the ordinary prayers and the ordinary conversations and the ordinary aspects of our life be seen as opportunities in which the Holy Spirit is at work to transform those around us and to even transform you and me. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for Paul's prayer. (laughs) God, we're thankful for Jesus and your Spirit who transformed Paul, the man who was in prison, but yet he was able to be so focused on you so focused on knowing you and the joy that comes in finding hope in you, not in this world. And he understood your power at work in the everyday stuff of life. Jesus, may we, may we allow you to come and interact in our lives. May we give you our days. And God, may we see you at work. And may we give glory to you, God, when you change God, even the smallest attitudes and aspects of our heart. God, may we rejoice in your spirit at work and give you glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We invite all believers to come to his table and to tear a piece of the bread, remembering his body broken for you, and to dip it in the juice. You can come down the center aisle, and then you can return to your seats. His table's open.